All right, good morning and welcome to Element. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here at Element, and so I'd like to welcome you. Uh, I want to tell you this is actually my first COVID-era message, and so it's a little strange speaking to an empty room, but I am grateful to know that you are actually there watching, and I'm grateful to know that we can worship together as a body of believers. And so I'm just thankful that you're joining uh, with us this morning. Uh, if you are new, you can follow along with the message by downloading an app called Version. You can click on more, click on events. It'll bring up the notes, all of the scriptures and the announcements for today as well. So I have a, a bit of a longer message this morning and I want to jump right into it. So please join me uh, in the reading of God's word. This is Revelation chapter 21 verses 22 through 26. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your awesome power that works mightily in us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who came and who died for us, that we might be called the children of God, that we could receive you, and that you have come to us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live inside of us and indwell us and empower us to walk in your way. I pray that this morning, Father, you would teach us what it means to be your people what it means to uh, have your law written on our hearts, and what it means to, to live as your temple, your dwelling place in this world, and that we may know what it means to be on mission for you in this world. So thank you for this morning. We pray that you would teach us, that you would guide us, and we give you all of the honor and all of the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is actually our 27th week going through the second part of the book of Acts, which focuses essentially on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, in the past few weeks, we've seen some really beautiful, as well as some difficult aspects of Christian community at work in the life of the Apostle Paul, as well as others in the early church. And one of the many blessings of committed relationships is the joy of being loved by fellow Christians. And we've seen this deep love expressed with weeping and embracing and kissing, which made it difficult for Paul to leave the Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20. And we also saw his newfound friends in Tyre and how they expressed warm affection and they sent off Paul and his team by bringing their families together to pray on their knees with them at the beach. And even last week, we saw the reception by the Christians in Jerusalem who were filled with this gladness and rejoicing over what God had done in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. But we also saw how a community's love and even their good intentions don't always align with God's plan. Prophetic insights into the persecution that Paul would be experiencing in Jerusalem led those who loved him to try and persuade him to avoid the inevitable suffering that he would experience there. And this was extremely difficult as they pleaded for Paul not to go. And we're told that even breaking his heart in the process. And even his closest friends were uh, swayed to discourage Paul from his plan and his calling. And we looked at some of the reasons why those who love us might try to shield us from the cross. And when we take 
community life seriously, it means that there may be times when even our own people uh, may take a stand that we must reject when we have the clarity of God's will and God's calling like Paul did. And one of the neat things that we also saw is that Paul demonstrated the transparency and the openness that Christian community requires by expressing his frustration and his pain over the approach that they took. But he also tried his best to help them understand what lay behind his decision to go ahead and that he was both ready to be bound and he was ready to die for the cause of Christ. Now, last week... We looked in Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26, and we saw another aspect of Christian commitment, where sometimes we may agree to do things that we feel are unnecessary for ourselves personally, but they help maintain unity. And that's what Paul did with his involvement with the four men who took a vow. He basically bent over backwards and he submitted to the will of the Jewish believers in keeping with what he taught in Ephesians chapter 5, where he wrote, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, and so this showed how seriously Paul viewed the unity of the church. He was willing to do everything possible to please those who were different in perspective from himself. And as we'll see, some believe that this was a big mistake because, we'll look at this, the whole plot ends up backfiring. But I'm sure that the Jewish Christians there, that they were grateful for the big price that Paul was willing to to pay to express his solidarity with them. And this perspective is especially important in our age of individualism uh, that has hit the church so hard that even church splits are considered a a desirable means of church growth. So let's see what happens next here. Now, up to this point, Paul has roamed around and he's wandered under the Spirit's direction without any bonds at all. And the closest he's come to being a prisoner for any length of time was back in Philippi, where he was put in jail. But the Lord knew that it wasn't quite time yet for his prison ministry. And so God sends an earthquake and the whole jail falls apart and Paul just walks out along with many of the prisoners. Now, I'm sure that there are probably people in jail right now who wish that that would happen, both guilty and innocent. And that would be a great thing. But... I'm sure it's not going to happen. But beginning here in chapter 21, he becomes a prisoner. And we'll see through the remainder of the book of Acts that Paul will give six different defenses for his actions. First, before a mob, then before the council, and then two before governors, and then one before a king, and then the last one before the Jews. And so as we move towards verse 27 here in Acts 21, we're reminded that Paul, he has arrived in Jerusalem and he's trying to conciliate the Christians there in Jerusalem who heard that he was anti-Jewish, that he had thrown out all of the Jewish traditions and customs, that he was against all the ceremony and tradition of Jewish life. And that just wasn't true. Paul himself was still very much Jewish. He was there to observe the Feast of Pentecost. He attended the synagogues on the Sabbath. He took the Nazarite Nazarite vow himself back in Acts chapter 18, and he even shaved his own head. So Paul, he hadn't thrown out all of the Jewish tradition. He was in transition, and it was taking some time for these old things to to die off. They were ingrained so much. But yet some of the Judaizers had told the Christians there that he 
was anti-Jewish. And so some of them were anti-Paul. And when he arrived in Jerusalem with all of his Gentile buddies, he came with the purpose of bringing needed money to the saints there to, and to show love from the Gentile church to them. And so he, was, uh, he had a great welcome from some, but others were greatly concerned because many of the Jewish Christians heard that he was trying to subvert Judaism. And so in order to change his reputation, they had him go to the temple to sponsor the Nazarite vows of four men by paying for the whole thing in the hopes that the Jewish Christians would say, well, hey, if if he's willing to do that, then maybe he's not as anti-Jewish as we were led to believe. And so he did that. And I'm pretty sure, though the text doesn't really say anything about it, that it must have had a positive effect on the Jewish Christians there. But it didn't have any effect on the Jewish non-Christians, none whatsoever. And so we meet them as we're introduced to what becomes the mob here in verse 27. And like most mobs, they become like a body of people with no head. They're a wild, maniacal group of people who, in a frenzy, try to murder the Apostle Paul. And so we pick it up in verse 27, and it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, Paul, having just come from abroad, um, his sponsorship of the four men required that he would regain ceremonial purity by completing this seven-day purification ritual. And so he would report to the priest at the beginning of those seven days, and he would inform him that he would be funding the offerings for all of the four men. And then he would return on the third day, and then on the seventh day, and he would be sprinkled with the water of atonement. And then at the end of the seven days, they would Uh, offer offerings, and the whole thing would be done. And so that's where we are, and it hasn't quite finished yet. And it says that the Jews from Asia, which is a reference to Asia Minor, and that's a Roman province uh, where the cities of Ephesus and Laodicea and Philadelphia, Thyatira and Sardis and Smyrna were located. These are the cities referred to in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. So these Jews from Asia Minor, when they saw him in the temple, of course they recognized who Paul was, because he had spent three years in Ephesus, and he had a dramatic effect in Ephesus by establishing a church there, by teaching every single day there, and he also created tremendous havoc in the synagogues there. And so the Jews from Asia, they probably were from Ephesus themselves, and that's probably where they met Paul. And the fact that they knew Trophimus, who will be introduced to in verse 29, who was from Ephesus, is also an indicator that that's where they were from. So when they saw Paul, they saw the real opportunity here. If you remember, there was a riot back in Ephesus earlier, and they tried to kill Paul. But cooler heads had prevailed, and the Gentiles squashed that riot, so they couldn't accomplish what they were trying to do. But now, they really saw their opportunity because here was an entire city overflowing with Jews because of Pentecost. And when they saw him in the temple, they stirred up all of the people. And the word that's used here for stirred up means confused. They confused all of the people. They confused this mob who then descends on Paul and grabs him. And then they begin crying and yelling in verse 28. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he he even brought Greeks into the temple and, and has defiled this holy place. Now, 
This would have been a mob of mobs. Historians tell us that there could have been up to two million people around the city at feast time. And again, this is the Feast of Pentecost, as we've seen before, signifies the 50th day after Passover. And it was said that the Torah, the law of Moses, was given 50 days after the Exodus. Now, that's important because it helps us to understand the attitude of the people at the time. They were in the midst of this celebration of the law, which means they were celebrating Jewishness to its nth degree. And the crowd was hyper-concerned about the sanctity of the law. And so they stirred up this crowd and they started yelling, help! And of course, this is just as if some blasphemy had occurred or some defamation or um, some terrible uh, defamation of the character of God or the character of Moses, that some slander has occurred, the desecration of the sanctuary. And so they cry out, men of Israel, help! And they announce the problem. This is the man, and they've got him by now, that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Now, the allegations here are serious, and they're all-inclusive. Teaches all men everywhere. And notice the first accusation, against the people. Basically, that Paul is anti-Semitic. Now, you... Now, you know, it would be a little difficult to accuse an individual of being anti-Semitic when he himself is a Jew. And you say, why would they accuse him of being anti-Jewish? Well, you see, historically here, a Jewish person associated their religion with their race. And so when somebody gave up their religion, they gave up their race in their mind. And you've probably heard about Jewish people who have come to Christ and they've been ostracized from their family. Because in the Jewish mind, that is tantamount to absolute rejection of Judaism. When in fact, if they knew anything about the Word of God, they would know that that, was, that is just complete to Judaism because Jesus is the Messiah. In reality, the one who rejects the Messiah is rejecting his own Judaism. The real rebel against Judaism is the unbelieving Jew who will, who will not accept his Messiah. The Christian Jew is the one who has received what God designed to be accomplished through Judaism, to have faith in his Messiah who has come and who has died and who has risen and is living and is interceding today. To reject Jesus is to reject everything that Judaism is. And so they said, he is against his people. And the second thing, and against the law. And man alive, at that time of the year, at that feast, that kind of accusation would really just flip everybody out. And they said, he's against the law. That means he's anti-God, or he's anti-Moses, and he's anti-biblical. Uh, And thirdly, the third thing, to top all of that off, and he is against this place, speaking of the temple. He's against the temple. And this is the big idea for today that I want to focus on, and that is that understanding these accusations against the Apostle Paul of being against the people and being against the law and being against the temple is the key to understanding the book of Acts and also the entire story of the Bible. We need to have a true understanding about the people and about the law and about the temple if we are going to understand the gospel. Now, I'll develop this in more detail at the end, but I want to get through the story here and continue. And so just in case these allegations were not convincing enough, they came up with something specific and something current here in verse 28. This is what he's recently done that's really bad. He brought Greeks into the temple and he polluted this holy place. Now that is a very strong accusation. 
You say, well, how do they know that he did that? In verse 29, it says, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So they didn't see him in the temple. They just assumed that that's what took place. They had no evidence. And so you may say, well, how do you know Paul didn't actually take him into the temple? Because that would have been really, really stupid. Paul had just spent seven days in a purification ritual to convince the Jews that he honored their customs. And then he would turn right around and haul a Gentile in there. There's no way that he would undo in one act what he had been trying to accomplish in those seven days. And beyond that, if Trophimus had entered that holy place, it uh, it would have been at the cost of his life, not Paul's life. So Paul wouldn't have done that to his friend. You see, for a Gentile to enter the area of, the, of that area of the temple was a death sentence. The Gentiles could only go into the outer court, which became known as the court of the Gentiles. And then between that and the inner court was the court of the women. And as the name implies, that's where the women were allowed to go. And then further on, the men went. And then beyond that, the priest. And then finally, beyond that, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest. But the outer court, that's where the Gentiles could go. And there were these barricades that were actually separating the inner and the outer courts. And signs were placed there in both Greek and Latin so that all pagans could read them. And archaeologists have discovered two signs from Herod's temple. One was found in 1871 and the second one in 1935. And they both said the same thing. Quote, No man of alien race is to enter within the barricade that goes around the temple. And if anyone is taken in the act, let him know that he has himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. Even the Romans knew how sacred this was to the Jews, and so they honored the enforcement of that law. Well, this did it. I mean, this was the accusation that absolutely stirred everybody up and was used as justification for them to grab Paul and try to kill him. But the whole thing here was a a pretense. And in all of the confusion, the mob had no idea what they were doing, which is typical mob behavior. In verse 30, And it says, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. Again, it's the time of feast and the whole city was outdoors, milling around everywhere. They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. They wanted to make sure that they got him out of there so that the people could continue worshiping God in the temple while they killed Paul, while they killed God's anointed. And this is the same thing they did at the trial of Jesus. They wanted to make sure they didn't violate the Sabbath um, That when they executed the Messiah. They wanted to make sure they didn't violate any of the particular things that was going on at that time. So they didn't want to enter the house of the Gentiles at all because they didn't want to defile themselves. And so they stayed outside and they screamed for the blood of the Messiah. And this is the strange confusion that results when you have a form of religion without the reality. It doesn't make any sense, and it leads to absolute chaos. And so we see the attack of the mob here. Well, fortunately for Paul, in God's great providence, uh, God wasn't done with him yet, and Paul's life wasn't yet going to be over. He had to extend his ministry for some time now. And so this time, God uses the Romans to preserve his life by arresting him away from the mob. 
Now, outside of the temple area was the Roman Fort Antonia, and it had this great tower that provided a clear observation area of the temple court there. And it was garrisoned at feast time by at least a thousand Roman soldiers. And these were highly trained men and skilled riot squads, and they didn't tolerate civil disorder. And any Roman commander that allowed that would have been in real trouble. And so they had this observation tower to watch over those congregating in the temple courtyard. And so the soldiers, looking down, they saw what was going on. And in verse 31, And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So they can see that something big is going on down there, and they got the riot squad ready to move out. And the tribune of the cohort, uh, who we see here, is a high-ranking officer who is over roughly a thousand men. You had centurions over a hundred, and you had tribunes over a thousand. And we'll see in chapter 3 that the tribune's name was Claudius Lysias. And history history tells us that he was a man of noble character and, and great ability. And so the word came that the whole city here was in an uproar, and, and he acted immediately. And this whole thing probably took just a matter of minutes. And in verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they had saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, no doubt Paul would have been pretty messed up by this time with all the pummeling and and the pounding that took place before the soldiers arrived. And we'll see later that the tribune already had this false idea about who Paul was, but he figured, well, I'll just make a formal arrest, and then I'll find out what the charges are later. In verse 33, Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Now, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that we saw in Acts 21 and verse 11 when Agabus showed Paul how he would be bound when in Jerusalem. The Jews had captured him, and the Romans now take him, and they bind him in chains. The prophecy came true. And they arrested him because they assumed that he was some sort of a rebel leader. The Romans were good at trying to find out, uh, trying to bring about justice. And so the tribune tried to find out what the demands were that had been made on Paul, and what he was accused of, and who he was, and, and basically just what was going on here. And in typical mob style, here in verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And so he couldn't get clear information out of the crowd. Nobody had the faintest idea what was going on. They were just all in on this thing. And they were screaming and yelling, and he couldn't get an answer. And so he commanded him to be carried into the barracks. Verse 35, And when he came to the steps... He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The soldiers had to put Paul up over their heads and carry him up the stairs because people were pulling and tearing and and grabbing at him. And the disappointed crowd had been robbed of its prey. And now it was pushing and it was shoving and it was screaming what it had screamed years earlier at Jesus, their Messiah. In verse 36, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Away with him. That's what they said to Jesus. That means to kill him. And so the screaming of the mob, kill him, kill him. And the tribune can't figure out what what it is that he's done or even who he is at this time. But you know what's amazing here? That in all of this, the Apostle Paul hasn't struggled or he hasn't said anything. 
he follows the example of his Lord Jesus before the mob with amazing humility and trust in God's plan for him. Now, we're going to look at what happens next in Paul's defense before the mob next week. But what I want to do is I want to come back to the accusations that were made against Paul. Because as I said, they are the key to understanding not only Acts, but the gospel as well. Because these are the same accusations that were made against Stephen in Acts chapter 6 before he was executed. And the same accusations that were also made uh, against Jesus as well. And so the proper understanding of those things is key. Because neither Paul nor Stephen nor Jesus taught against those things. But rather they taught the true and proper understanding of those things. And so the first one that I want to look at is speaking against the people. Or speaking against the Jews and their unique relationship to God. This would have been the whole story of the Old Testament. And that Paul is teaching against their ethnic lineage that stretched across the millennia. That he's anti-Semitic once again. But just like the Apostle Peter, back in Acts chapter 2, both Peter and Paul believed in what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter 2, in verse 32. And he said, And it shall come to pass that Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul is not anti-Semitic. He's speaking the truth that the time has come when God's plan to, to save all people from all nations has arrived through Jesus Christ. Paul loved his people, the Jews, enough to tell them the truth that they didn't want to hear. And that is that God in his sovereign mercy has purposed to offer salvation to all people. All people, not just the Jews. It began with the Jews, but then it was meant for all people. Paul started by going to the Jews, but then he was called to the Gentiles. And that's what he's been doing up to this point in Acts. Paul wasn't teaching against the people. He was teaching the truth about the people. And that brings us to the second point, that Paul is teaching against the law. Now, this is not the Ten Commandments, but rather that he was speaking uh, words against the traditions and the customs of the Jews, the ceremonial laws and circumcision and purification rites, etc. Now, we can all find it difficult to look past our customs and our traditions. We, we can begin to equate what we've done. Uh, we can begin to uh, equate the way we've done things with God's laws or God's ways. Even the good traditions that we have can become so distorted that we hear the tradition or the custom rather than the sovereign word of God. And this is one of the great things about the Reformation. It was the focus on God's word in order to peel away the tradition and the customs so that the truth of the simple gospel could be heard and could be obeyed. And so what did Paul have to say? Well, he wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth, and he had just come from there. And so Paul describes what he thinks about the law. Speaking of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, he said, They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The law for Paul wasn't customs and traditions. It was the Holy Spirit writing God's law on our hearts. This is what Aaron had talked about last week. Uh, as we saw, it's the law of Christ. It's the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Ultimately, it is the law of love. And then even going back a few more weeks, it's the way. 
It's walking with our sovereign God in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. He writes His laws on our hearts and He he applies His words to our hearts, helping us to walk with Him in His way. And it was only by the Holy Spirit that Paul was able to see beyond his customs and his traditions that made him a persecutor of the way to become a missionary to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit took the Old Testament scriptures and opened up his heart and opened up his mind so that he could hear and believe and rejoice as he obeyed. God's laws were written on his heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for you and for me. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, God says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All Paul was doing was applying the Old Testament scripture, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to the circumstances in which he was in. He's not teaching against the law any more than he was teaching against the people. He was teaching what God's word had always said. And that's the same thing that we are called to do as well. And then lastly, the third thing, he was accused of teaching against the temple. Now, you cannot overstate the significance of the temple in the Jewish mind. It represented where heaven and earth meet. God coming to his people, the very presence of God. It was a holy place. And that's why the Gentiles who went beyond the court of the Gentiles were worthy of death. And Jesus was accused of this as well when he said that he would tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. That was blasphemy to them. But when he rose from the dead after three days, Jesus became the temple for us all. He was explaining the temple. He wasn't teaching against it. The temple had always pointed to Jesus. The perfect expression of what the temple was uh, was only a shadow and was only a signpost of what was to come. Jesus, Emmanuel, the true and perfect representation of God with us. You see, we don't need a special building. There are people even today who want the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And as Christians, that makes no sense at all if we have Jesus. It's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and also of the architecture of the temple because the temple is with us. And even beyond that, I want to look at two scriptures. Even going beyond that, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, this is the Apostle Peter now. He writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that is a temple, a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, again, quoting the Old Testament, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That was Peter. Going back to Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, 
Do you not know that you are God's temple? You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What do we see here? That the temple, the building architecture, the holy place has been replaced. It's been replaced first by Christ as the chief cornerstone. And then, and then the temple with Christ as the cornerstone is us. It's you and me. We are the temple. You see, Paul is not teaching against the temple here. He's explaining the temple and what the scriptures have said all along that the people of God, whose heart the Holy Spirit is writing his law, are the temple of God. And what should be breathtaking gospel news, what should be exciting, life-transforming wisdom from, from God, what should be this mystery revealed, what should stir them to gratitude and praise, instead moves them to violence and to hatred. They hate Paul for speaking the truth of their own scriptures. And just like this, there will be those who get angry with us for speaking the truth, no matter how carefully or how sensitively we speak it, because they will be offended by the message. That's why they hated Paul. That's why they hated Jesus. So don't be surprised if you receive the same. Now, I want to go back to the verse that we opened with as we start to wind things down. I want to go back to Revelation chapter 21, in verse 22 through 26. And again, now this is the Apostle John writing, and he says, and I saw no temple in the city. Now, this is the new Jerusalem. Okay, this is the new heaven and, and the new earth. And there's no temple in the city. And this would have been a strange thing for a Jew to see. The Apostle John in this case. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The temple. The temple was always pointing towards the great day that we see here in Revelation 21, when God will consummate the creation and bring it to perfection. The temple was pointing towards, uh, this was everything that the temple was pointing towards. Even the Garden of Eden back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, all of that was pointing towards the great day when God would bring it to perfect completion. And so, back in Acts 21, we're getting ready now for this great engagement between those who refuse to hear the truth and those who proclaim the truth and believe it. And they have the people and they have the law, and they have the temple. And what Paul describes throughout Acts, and what he describes in his letters, is not, is not the people coming to the temple, but the temple coming to the people. The temple, which is God's people, which is you and me, going to those who don't know God, and who don't know the gospel. I want to quote uh, an excerpt from Greg Beale's book. That he wrote this massive volume uh, that is titled The Temple and the Church's Mission. And he goes into great detail about this one subject. And the, the purpose of his book that he explains here, I think, is, is really great. He says this, quote, 
The main point of this book is that our task as the covenant community of the church is to be God's temple so filled with His glorious presence that we might expand and fill the earth with that presence until God finally accomplishes the goal completely at the end of time. This is our common mission. May the church of the 21st century unite in order to attain this goal. Then may the church, the true Israel, and the true temple experience the priest blessing pronounced on Israel from the tabernacle as it extends God's tabernacling presence. Paul didn't come preaching a new religion. He understood himself teaching the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. He came to the Jews, the heirs of the Old Testament, with this breathtaking truth that Jesus had inaugurated this new era Not a new religion, but the same covenant fulfilled in Christ and now open to the likes of you and me. This is what Paul taught. And this is the message that he will continue to preach throughout the end of the book of Acts. And so as we prepare our hearts to to worship as the band will be playing some songs, may we actually be a people that truly understand who we are as God's people. And our mission to take God's good news to all people from all races into every corner of the world. And may we be those who are led by the Holy Spirit to walk in the freedom of His way with His law written on our hearts so that we may love all people, those who believe and those who don't, just as Jesus loves them. And let us pray that we become a community of believers, a spiritual house, a temple uh, where God's Spirit dwells in us so fully that everyone we come in contact with will sense the very presence and love of God in us. So as we do every week, we want to give you a a time to worship God through uh, celebrating communion. We want to worship God through our giving and through a time of prayer. Now, uh, how many of you out there have actually been celebrating communion? Uh, raise your hands. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, well, I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, uh, I know we haven't been doing it uh, regularly either, but I want to encourage you to, to actually take some time to do that. Uh, we want to remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about what he received from the Lord. He, he, he said that uh, uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread and he broke it. And he said, uh, take this, this is my body that was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink it, uh, do this in remembrance of me. He said, for as often as we eat that bread and we drink that cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we take the cracker or the bread or whatever you may have and you, you take the wine or the grape juice, we remember the price that was paid to buy our adoption as God's children, that we may become His people. We remember the price that was paid to set us free from both the penalty and the power of sin, uh, and so that God's law could be actually written on our hearts. And we remember the price that was paid for our reconciliation, that we may be united once again back to Christ so that God's Spirit may dwell in us, and that we may be God's people on mission 
to this world. And so I would encourage you to, to celebrate communion and plan for that going forward. Also, we want to worship God through prayer. And uh, if you have a prayer request, I want to encourage you to, to go ahead and share those with us. You can do that by sending an email to connect at ourelement.org. Or if you're watching online, you can actually type comments um, right there on the computer screen. And we'd love to have somebody get back to you and to pray with you if you have needs. And we want to worship God through our giving. Obviously, we can't uh, drop our gifts and offerings in the boxes around the room. But we can still give online, or we can mail our gifts and offerings to the church. You can find our address on the website as well. So please pray with me as we close today. Our Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your awesome power and your awesome plan, that in your great wisdom, Lord, that you have revealed this mystery to us, that is Jesus coming in the flesh, and living that perfect life, and and dying for us, and then rising from the dead, and ascending back to you. We thank you that he did this for us, so that we might be adopted as your sons and your daughters, Lord, so that we could live as your people, with your laws written on our hearts, by your power, and that we could represent you, Lord, as your people, uh, being your spiritual dwelling, Lord, your temple to the world where your presence may be known, where others Lord, who don't know you and have never heard the gospel may be able to experience the joy and the freedom and the blessings that you bring, Lord. And so we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. We pray that um, you would continue to open our eyes and to reveal to us, Lord, all the ways that you have um, blessed us and all of the things, Lord, that um, you would call us now to do in your name. Uh, so may we respond to your grace and to your mercy by serving and loving you and by uh, experiencing the joy that you have intended for us from the beginning of time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.